This episode of Paper Team is brought to you by Roadmap Writers. Roadmap Writers gives screenwriters the tools they need to take their skills to the next level with courses taught by industry executives. In just two years, Roadmap has helped more than 40 writers find representation. Visit RoadmapWriters.com and use the code ROADMAP, all caps, all one word, to save $15 off your first program. Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And today we're going to talk about creating and showrunning animated TV shows as we've invited a very special guest, Tom Ruger, the creative force behind, well, probably your entire childhood with shows like Animaniacs, Pinky and the Brain, Tiny Toon Adventures, Hysteria, Freakazoid, and most recently, The 70 on Disney XD. Welcome. Hey, Alex. Hi, Nick. Thanks for coming. Good to be here. So what first drew you to TV and animation in particular? Uh, Money, to have a job. (laughs) Uh, I I was out of college and I needed to get some work. Uh, I had driven uh, from New Jersey to LA in search of specifically work in animation because I had pursued animation in college and I had been drawing since I was a kid. I was a big fan of Hanna-Barbera, and the first day I arrived, I called up Hanna-Barbera, and I asked for Bill Hanna, and uh, (laughs) they connected me to him. Uh, He wasn't in at the moment, uh, but then uh, a few hours later, in the phone booth outside my motel, where women of the night were answering the phone, (laughs) the phone rang, and it, it was a call from his office for me, and a few moments later, there was a knock on my little motel room door, and it was one of these lovely young women, said, are you Ruger? There's a phone call at the booth, but hurry it up. That's a business line for us. <laughs> so Bill Hanna was on the phone. He said, we're really busy. We have a lot of shows. Joe sold all these shows. Get right over here. <laughs> and so literally, I got I got a job in LA my first day here. I was given a one-month trial period, and I survived, and I stayed there a couple of years doing animation. So that was not writing. I was animating and assistant animating for classic animators who were working on shows. Now, I loved Hanna-Barbera stuff when I was a kid, so this was like a dream job for me. Then I transitioned to Filmation Studios, which was another animation studio, and that's where I started writing. They were shipping animation overseas, so there were fewer opportunities for animators. And I ultimately transitioned back to Hanna-Barbera, where I started writing Scooby. Writing Scooby is like having a a long-term job because (laughs) they always need more Scoobies. So that became quite a gig many years. So that's how I I got my start in television and writing. And the Scooby show that I produced and wrote and story edited was a a pup named Scooby-Doo. And that's where I ultimately made the transition over to Warner Brothers because that show was very successful and Spielberg saw it and liked it. And that's how I got the gig on Tiny Toons. Did you have any formal writing education or did you kind of pick it up from working at animation? Uh, How did that work for you? I was an English major in college. In uh, high school, to avoid serious assignments, I would try to write funny papers. I mean, not (laughs) not comics, but I I tried to write amusing pieces. I took creative writing in high school. When they gave you opportunities to uh, do uh, independent study, I would make little movies or little radio shows. So I always liked to do sort of the creative stuff. I was the editorial cartoonist at the high school. So 
And then in college, I had made an animated film called The Premiere of Platypus Duck. So I had that under my arm when I came to LA. And I always wanted to do sort of the combo writing, cartooning. I wanted to do like comic strips. But in college, I remember it, freshman year in college, we had to read Paradise Lost by Milton. And it's a real heavy duty, long poem, a drag. So my final paper, my term paper for that book was, I wrote like a situation where Milton's alive today and he's, he arrives on the set of a movie being made of his work. And he's blind, but he can hear it all. <laughs> And they're turning it into a big sort of extravaganza musical. One of the songs was Purgatory, Here We Come, a Land of Hate and Devil's Glum, where fires will spire into the night, where boulders will smolder sizzling bright. God in his cruel politics sends us to the river sticks. Flames will be our crucifix. Oh, Purgatory, Here We Come. Now, this was, uh, again, in an English class. And I was getting bad <laughs> grades up to this point, but this the teacher was blown away, or the professor was blown away by this, so I realized, oh, I can get away with not knowing things <laughs> by being funny. <laughs> and uh, that, so that helped me a lot. Could you tell us a little bit about your first writing jobs? Well, uh, the first job I had writing was uh, at Filmation, and I got there when they had a sudden boom of work, and the first thing I ever wrote was some truly dreadful property called Sports Billy. And they had gathered these writers together on their staff, and they said, we need you to write like 50 half-hour episodes of Sport Billy like in the next week, something crazy like that. While I wrote one or two over a couple of weeks, there was a writer there that, uh, and I won't mention his name, but he had an IBM Selectric in front of him, and he would just pound on the keys, and there was an assistant who would feed paper into it. And he literally never looked up. He just wrote, 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 and he said, okay, I'm almost at the bottom of the page. And she would quickly put in another piece of paper and he would just keep writing. And then she would tell him when he was at page 32, which was how long the scripts needed to be, you're almost at page 32. Okay, uh, fade out. All right, next. And he wow. put in another piece of paper. Jesus. I don't know. Uh, Sports Billy was not a great show. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, over at Hanna-Barbera, I, I got my writing job from Joe Barbera, who brought me into his office. This is before I had the job. And he sat me down, and he started telling me about this Yogi Bear uh, cartoon idea he had, where a busload of school children drives up and says, look at the bears, look at the bears, look at the bears. And Yogi and Boo Boo took great offense to this, you know, get rid of these kids, they're driving me crazy. And so he's telling me this story, and I'm listening, and I'm like, what is he talking about? He hasn't made Yogi Bear in like 25 years. <laughs> Why is he talking about Yogi Bear? But I listened to him, I said, oh yeah, that's, that's great. And he said, good, okay, you have a job. <laughs> so it was just like, I was a pretty good listener. I mean, I've, I always loved Joe, he was a... a, a Really, he taught me many, many things. He, he brought me in one day. I was making a pup named Scooby-Doo, and we had wild takes in that show, like Tex Avery wild takes, eyeballs popping out of their heads and, you know, tongues zigzagging out of their mouths. And he said, uh, Tom, you know, uh, when Tex made those, I, one of the things I, I know he did, he not only made the wild visuals, but the sound effects he put with them were 
not normal. They were bizarre. They were like out of left field. They were unexpected. And that's part of the success of those gags that you need to put just bizarre screeching monkeys and <laughs> weird sounds. And I, I really hadn't thought about that. And he's absolutely right. And so that really, that was a great little clue. Uh, also, Bill Hanna, I asked him to direct the first episode of A Pup Named Scooby-Doo, which few people realize it's like the, one of the very last things he ever directed. And he sat up in his office with a metronome. He, that's how he timed animation. Mm. Wow. But one of the things I vividly remember from my Hanna-Barbera days is that there was a whole group of older gents who were writers at the uh, studio. And seasoned vets, they knew what they were doing. They were the story editors, and I would report to them, and I would take my young assignments from them. But at lunchtime, they would go to the Howard Johnson's on Vineland, uh, the Beverly Garland Howard Johnson's, and they would get just loaded. <laughs> and they would come back after lunch, and you could not talk to these people after lunch. They were just abusive monsters. Oh, no. <laughs> so... uh so basically, the best work I've done in the morning at Hanna-Barbera. <laughs> <laughs> so for our listeners who aren't familiar with how animation and, and animation writing works, can you kind of just define the difference between storyboard-driven shows and script-driven shows and how that all works? Now, most of my shows have been writer-driven. And I've always taken great comfort in having a great script to start with. And then we go to board and we start making this cartoon. It's a, it's a great place to start to have a strong script with a great story and with the jokes really apparent on the page. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to work because you still need a great storyboard artist to bring it to life. But a solid script with a structure, beginning, middle, end, and, and some assured, uh, surefire jokes already in there is a great place to start. Now, some shows are driven by a storyboard where they start with maybe a, a basic outline, then the storyboard artist has handed the outline and goes from there. Now, if the storyboard artist is accomplished, a great artist, a great story person, great at creating great visual gags, knows how to write a line of dialogue, then you're in like Flint, it's gold. But there, there are only so many of those great storyboard artists, so it can be challenging. I think, I think it would be a, a great class to take a storyboard driven class. My experience has been with a great storyboard artist, you can count on it, anything being improved. But without that person, you better have a great script. What do you think sets writing animation apart from writing for live action? And what do you have to do differently in the script, especially to make animation work? I'll answer the second part first. To make an animated script, I find that the more detail you put into it, the better off it's going to be down the line. A really great animation script, in my mind, has all the information you'd need. It really is a direction. There's a director involved in the writer. Uh, he has to call the uh, shots. He has to call the direction of the movement. He has to bring the characters in and out. I like a lot of detail. That's why my animated scripts and a lot of the people I work with are usually, they are long, <laughs> like Maybe it'll be a half-hour cartoon, it'll be 50 pages, and people say, oh, that's like 20 pages too long. Well, in my mind, I'm seeing it, I'm hearing it, it's not. I'm just putting in way too much detail, which people don't really appreciate. The difference between animation and live action 
in the scripting, I think live action tends to leave more up to the director's work later on. So the writers just got to get sort of the, the feeling and all the dialogue. In the producing of uh, a live action program versus an animated program, well, it's, of course, vastly different. And I think what's really great about animation is, as a producer or director or writer, you can say exactly what you want your character to do. And as long as it's being drawn, it's going to happen. In live action, you can say what you want your actor to do, but they may not want to do it. <laughs> they, they may say, you know what, I'm thinking something else. Or, you know, you know what, I, I, I got to get through this there real quick. So let's move through this. Let's skip that part. Uh, in animation, it's an incredible amount of control that the creators have, which I think is more than live action. Well, how granular do you get on that page in terms of direction, not just in terms of the dialogue, but really the set design, the, the character design? How does that work? Well, I've had the good fortune of being able to be the producer, so I can follow through. So it's great being the writer, but then if you can then, after writing it, you can uh, be involved in the discussions of the storyboard and revise the storyboard, and you can be involved in the color correction or the color selection and the, uh, the backgrounds which is what I've always liked to do, then you can really get into the details. I like to be honest about it, though, so I like to put as much as I can into that opening script. So I'll give your location. I'll be very specific about where we are. Basically, the concrete stuff. What do you see and what do you hear? As long as you can be concrete in everything you write in a script, I think the reader should be able to almost see the show in front of them. So what's your process for coming up with ideas for TV shows? Well, for TV shows or for episodes, uh, uh, for TV shows, it's it's sort of where you're living, what you're thinking, what you're doing. Uh, I'm I'm in a world of cartoons, so I tend to think up uh, weird animals doing bizarre things. I and mean, I'm not trying to be kinky here. I'm just talking about funny situations. Animaniacs was a follow-up to uh, Tiny Toons. So how I came up with that is basically we knew we wanted a new show. I knew I wanted it to be a variety show with lots of wild characters and plenty of music, plenty of funny situations. But I knew we wanted to make it more irreverent than Tiny Toons, and I knew I wanted it to be new characters. I had played around with uh, a duck-billed platypus character from my college years, and I adapted those ducks into the Warner Brothers, and then they turned into from ducks into more generic cartoon characters. But they kept the same sort of basic design as these ducks. And then, you know, you just take things out of life. I had these friends who were working at the studio, uh, Tom Mitten and Eddie Fitzgerald, who uh, were zany writers, directors, artists. And they would get together in the next room and they would they would talk about their plans. And, and, and Mitten would, Mitten had a very low voice and he would go, we should do this. And, and Eddie, who had a big booming voice, would go, <laughs> And they, he literally said "narf." So <laughs> I would, I would say, "What are they doing in there? What, what happens? Is they, what are they? Are they taking over the world? Are they planning to take over the world?" <laughs> so literally, that was the uh, the inspiring moment that that came up with Pinky in the Brain. So I think for creating a show, you take anything that's happening in life that suddenly strikes you as being unique and uh, maybe uh, relevant or. Uh, something that people would appreciate. And then, so what makes a great idea for a show? What elements does it need to be successful and generate endless amounts of story? Well, that's really the trick, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, that's, 
that's what we're all driving at uh, constantly. Uh, we all want to have the big hit show, the SpongeBob or, you know, Animaniacs, Pinky the Brain. You need, I think, relatable characters that somehow, whether they're flawed or great, the, the audience somehow falls in love with them and wants to return each week and see their next adventure. To have that sustain and go on for years and years is really uh, the, the trick. You want to have, I think, great people involved in making it. I think Animaniacs lasted as long as it did. We had incredibly talented writers. We had Sherry Stoner, Paul Rugg, Peter Hastings, John McCann, Nick Hollander, Deanna Oliver. I mean, these people all, they had a great deal of improv background. They had musical qualities to their talents. And then we had artists like Rich Aarons, Alfred Gimeno, who loved the show. I think having a show that everybody on staff really cares about and loves helps you sustain. You spoke about the aesthetics of the Warners on Animaniacs. Could you talk a little bit about how the story side of things was developed on an episode-to-episode basis? So we had this need for a new program. We went and we pitched these little nuggets of ideas to Stephen. We went to his house one Saturday morning, just like now. <laughs> I had some art, uh, had some uh, ideas for different segments. We had the Warners, we had Pinky in the Brain, we had Slappy Squirrel, we had Mindy and Buttons, we had Rita and Runt. So we had a bunch of franchises and we were proposing to put them all together into one series. So I pitched uh, Pinking the Brain by singing their main title theme song. So I'm going to sing again. <laughs> so I, I sang the same words that is, are in the main title right now, but to the tune of Singing in the Rain. So it went, they're Pinky in the Brain. Yes, Pinky in the Brain. One is a genius. The other's insane. <laughs> they're laboratory mice. Their genes have been spliced. They're Dinky. They're Pinky in the Brain. And they had this picture of them. And I just did that. And Stephen just looked at me and said, sold. <laughs> so he's a sucker for a show tune. Uh, so we sold Slappy that morning. The Warners, the three Warner kids were ducks at that point. He said, ducks have been overdone. So we went back to the drawing board, literally the drawing board on them, turned them into these generic uh, cartoon characters. Uh, now, Mindy and Buttons... He said, uh, I don't know, we got a lot of duos. We were already had uh, gotten Rita and Runt through the process. So he was uh, wavering on Mindy and Buttons until uh, his wife and kids came in, and they kind of stormed in the room. We had artwork laying all around, and one of his kids just walked up to Mindy and Buttons, a little tiny tyke of a child, he said, I like her. <laughs> and uh, Stephen Turnoist said, Minion buttons are back in. <laughs> it's all so, about the kids. <laughs> so that's that's about just about the uh, the early process of how we sold the development. So at that point, it was Sherry Stoner and me and Peter and Deanna kind of all whacking away at this. Uh, Nick Hollander was there too, and Sherry and I spent a few weeks just developing what we thought was the Bible for this series, and the Bible was turned out to be like 80 pages. And it had lots of different routines and bits for the Warners, like shtick that uh, that Dot might go through with Princess Luigi Francesca, Banana Fanta Bolesca. I mean, just all sorts of little bits. Good night, everybody. You know, hello, nurse. And uh, 
So we started developing what these different characters did in different situations. And we, we always knew that the Warners were going to be about upending people in authority or that deserved it, you know, taking pompous people and popping their bubble. That situation for them, that sort of uh, background for them, created all sorts of ideas for shows, for episodes. And so they were immediately pretty easy to write for. Uh, Pinky and the Brain were each night taking over the world. So there was, by developing these characters in, in little niches where they kind of do the same thing every time, it made writing them uh, in a factory setting uh, work out. The, the less focused the franchise, like Rita and Runt were always looking for a home and, and Minnie and Buttons uh, was, Buttons was always chasing Minnie and trying to save her. Those became, I think, less vital because uh, they tended to wander too much, while the Warners always were trying to upend authority, and they, it worked very well. So of all those guest characters and sketches on the show, why were Pinky and the Brain the best choice for sort of a spin-off series? Why did they lend themselves the best to that? I remember a meeting at Amblin. Uh, the network was there, Margaret Lesh, and uh, Stephen was there. And Margaret said, you know, I think Pinky and the Brain should get their own show. And Stephen said, I agree. And so at that meeting, just... And we were just there to take notes from Stephen on some storyboards. At that meeting, suddenly Pinky and the Brain were going to be their own franchise. Th- these folks probably follow the ratings. I, I was so busy at that time just churning out shows that... I knew the show was doing well. I didn't know it was just going through the roof. So I think they looked at it as a way to double profit from uh, investment. I mean, here we got a show that's doing very well. Let's spin it off. Pinky and the Brain were very popular. The, 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 sh- the episodes were really working well. The personalities of the two interacting really worked. Of course, when we then went to series... That's when the WB got involved and tried to turn it into like a, a sitcom with a wacky neighbor. And it, it was just like bizarre. Uh, it's like, that. why is it that you have this franchise that's really working and you really love it and people love it? And then, okay, we're going to make more of them. We're going to make it its own series. All right, let's change everything in it. Uh, that's something uh, I think everyone needs to fight the good fight on. And uh, I guess we failed to fight that. Properly. So you also worked on Batman, the animated series, which seems like it has a very different tone to some of your other work, since it's a little bit more dramatic. Uh, how was that transition, and how was it different for you creatively to write for that show? Well, Batman came after Tiny Toons and before Animaniacs happened, but I was working on Animaniacs uh, development at the same time we were making Batman. At that point, I was I was like the creative director of Warner Brothers Animation. So I had my fingers in a lot of different pies. Batman began uh, with a, a great little film clip that was made and that sold it as a, as a show. I worked on the Bible for Batman. Paul Dini worked on part of it, and I worked on part of it. Sean Derrick did. So I was involved in the process. I tried to avoid writing the scripts because I had a lot of other things to do. But then we ran into like a production issue where we were behind schedule. Alan Burnett came in and Paul Dini was there. So I started writing some of the Batman scripts. The first one I did was uh, Poison Ivy. As a process, uh, dramatic scripting is can be very different than just doing comedy. Because comedy, you're just trying to set it up, do the joke, and have fun. I remember the first thing I wrote on Batman was... 
this dinner scene between Harvey Dent and the girl who was disguising herself, but who was Poison Ivy. And they were out on the tent and they were talking about Bruce Wayne and Harvey Dent's best friend is Bruce Wayne at this point. And she's being very cunning and curious about Bruce. And well, tell me all about Bruce. And so I intercut in that scene with, at that moment, Batman was beating the heck out of some, some <laughs> thugs on a rooftop. And so this very quiet, gentle, sweet dinner scene is intercut with these violent acts that Batman is going through. So I got to tell you, it was a very freeing experience to write that sort of stuff. It, and I really felt like, oh, I love this. I love writing the dramatic. And also, in Animaniacs, we're not very violent, per se. We blow up things. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's cartoony violence. <laughs> yeah. But this was, uh, this was a good experience. So after I wrote the Poison Ivy script, I, I realized, oh, I do want to be involved in this. I do like writing these. And so I did a, a, a few of them. But uh, Alan Burnett and Paul Dini really uh, carried a tremendous amount of the writing effort. There were a couple scenes in uh, some of the Batman episodes that I wrote that didn't make the final cut. One had Batman meeting with a priest at a church, and they're meeting in the confessional, and Batman's like whispering to the guy, you know, we've got to go save your friend. The priest <laughs> is trying to stay out of it. And uh, so Batman gets out of the confessional and is walking out of the church, and at that point you're seeing two altar boys up there, and they look over and say, gee, I, I thought he was Episcopalian. I <laughs> <laughs> didn't make the cut. Uh, I wrote a script, a half-hour script, called The One and Only Gun Story. Now, we didn't have a lot of guns in the show. I mean, Batman would kick guns away, boot them away. But I wrote this story that, that began uh, with the gathering of iron ore and the smelting of it. And we follow this hunk of metal until it gets turned into a gun. And then we just, the camera's on this gun for 21 minutes. And it's the gun that kills Bruce Wayne's parents. And, and ultimately he gets this gun at the very end and he, he turns it into like a, a slab of metal that turns into the plaque that's on their grave site. And it, it was really a, a beautiful thing. Fox said, eh, eh. No <laughs> guns. No gun. Mm. Okay. Wow. So you've often taken these established characters, uh, such as, you know, the Seven Dwarves, the Tiny Toons, Batman, and given them a kind of a fresh and interesting new spin. How do you approach reinventing beloved characters and familiar characters for a new audience? Well, uh, Tiny Toons, they were, they were new characters. And, of course, Bugs and Daffy and Elmer and Porky, they were teachers at that school at uh, Acme Lou. But we never felt that Buster and Babs and... Plucky were the, exactly the same as the original characters. So we had the freedom to uh, really kind of mess around with their personalities and make them younger and uh, more naive and perhaps more vulnerable. Now, I grew up with Batman with Adam West. So the, this new Batman series, based more on the, the Tim Burton movies, uh, was a new take on it. And I think visually, Batman the Animated Series is, is gorgeous. So I couldn't get away from the Adam West version, though. So uh, I, I insisted that he play uh, the gray ghost in Batman the Animated Series, who was Bruce Wayne's childhood hero. And so that was a real treat and a real kick to have the original Batman for me, Adam West, come in and do the voice for uh, Bruce Wayne's hero. 
Now, on the 7D, I was brought into that series after the characters were redesigned. And I was, I was told, these are the designs that we're going to be using for this show. So already I knew they wanted something kind of completely different than the original because these were not your grandparents' uh, seven dwarves. They looked very different. And, you know, they were made for sort of TV production. So at that point, I just wanted to make sure the show was really funny and clever. And to uh, that end, I, <laughs> I brought in Paul Rugg, Deanna Oliver, Sherry Stoner, uh, Charlie Howell, uh, other writers from uh, the original Animaniacs series because I knew that they could spin their magic with uh, these new characters. I do like a lot of the episodes. Not everyone's great, but uh, I do think there's some fun characters. And, and Rug playing uh, Starch Bottom is, always gives me a kick. <laughs> do you have any favorite scripts that you've written over the years? Well, there was one script on Tiny Toons that went through this long, long process and the idea was that we would play the Anvil Chorus at the Hollywood Bowl, during which Plucky Duck would be smashed by anvils. <laughs> and uh, so I said, that's the idea. That's the show. That's the cartoon. I don't know how long it is. It might be short, but Hollywood Bowl, Anvil Chorus, Plucky Duck, smashed by anvils. I handed it out to a writer, and he came back with this long thing that had almost nothing to do with that. Like, that was maybe... Uh, a page of a 16-page script. And it's like, no, 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 It's that's the idea. The idea is... And so that gave it to someone else. And same thing, same, it was like it was like a bad case of playing the game telephone where you say a word and then at the end of the process, it's like not what you asked for. So ultimately, I took the script and I, I just made it the anvil course and Bucky does get smashed by anvils <laughs> and not liking it at all. I liked that cartoon. It's very violent. It's cathartic. I think that in my experience as a writer and as a producer over the years, that's the trickiest thing. When you have a really good idea and want to see it executed perfectly, you have to honor the idea. You have to keep your eye on that idea and not let it go off in different directions. And that happens a lot. And I think keeping the idea pure is really important. There are two uh, Warner cartoons where I was involved in the writing that I think kind of stand the test of time. One is uh, hooked on a ceiling and the other is this pun for hire. This pun for hire ends with Yakko, Wacko, and Dot arriving in a restaurant. And over in the corner, there's uh, Spielberg, Katzenberg, and Geffen. And they've found basically the Maltese Falcon there. And someone says, what what are those guys all about? They're the stuff DreamWorks are made of. So as we've just witnessed in this episode, music has always been an important part of all your shows. Why do you think that is? And why do you think those iconic songs of your shows resonate with people? When I was a kid, I had this tape recorder. It was a reel-to-reel. I wish I still had it, but I don't. But I would tape TV shows that I knew I would like while they were going. So I remember when Charlie Brown's Christmas first came on, I, I played, I taped that the year before I had taped uh, Magoo's Christmas Carol. And then I would be able to play these cartoons, just the audio during the year over and over again. And I did, and I really fell in love with them. Now, if you recall, great music in the Charlie Brown Christmas. Um, the Magoo Christmas Carol was a musical, great songs. And so uh, those definitely influenced me. I loved uh, the Yogi Bear show, Huckleberry Hound, 
Quick Drum McGraw show, those shows had great main title music songs. I knew that when I wanted to make animation, I, I would include songs in it. So in college, when I made uh, the premiere of Platypus Duck, my best pal, who was a music major and a great guitarist, uh, Parker McDonald, he could sing, he uh, provided the music and the song. So the, the whole episode is packed with music, and there are also a couple songs in it. Uh, that's the Platypus Duck show. So I always knew that if I ever had the opportunity to make animated cartoons in the style of Looney Tunes, uh, Hanna-Barbera, I would want to make sure songs were a part of it. When we first made Animaniacs uh, in cartoons, this is before maybe the uh, CGI uh, feature renaissance, we were the only show really packing our shows with fun songs. Songs that kind of would create a worm in your ear and would, would stick with you. That proved to be a very successful move on our part. We would uh, be invited to schools. Uh, just a few months after the show went on the air, where entire schools had learned the nations of the world and would sing United States, Canada, Mexico, Panama to us <laughs> after learning it. I mean, so our show was reaching our target audience and they were committing themselves to learning these songs like the, the States. and But some of the sillier songs too, like Lake Titicaca, they were really um, digging these tunes. So we decided we're, we're going to keep the songs going. There are also episodes that are just like, I look at them and I realize the amount of work that went into it. Deanna Oliver wrote uh, Les Miserables, which was a full-on parody of uh, Les Mis, packed with songs. We did uh, Pigeons on the Roof, West Side Story, which was uh, uh, We Want to Sit on Scorsese's Head. So I think these songs are uh, were silly for us. They were funny for us. I don't think kids knew they were parodies of big musicals, but... It's, it's funny, the audiences that enjoyed uh, Animaniacs when they were kids have grown up, and then they look back and said, oh, look what they were telling us about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, Hysteria was a more explicitly educational program, and you guys had to kind of work to FCC requirements about that, right? And how was it working to an educational component and balancing that with story and comedy? Yeah, there was a fellow named Reed Hunt who was uh, in charge of the FCC, and he passed a law that every TV station had to have a certain number of hours of children's educational programming during the week. And it was just uh, quite a mandate and stations were scrambling. So I, I took this opportunity and proposed Warner Brothers make uh, an educational kids show, uh, which was Hysteria. Remember, we pitched that to all the execs at Warner's and you know, it went over very big. Paul Rudd came in and did a whole sort of comedy routine of uh, being like a mentalist who uh, predicted the future, like Nostradamus, and uh, got Bob Daly to get involved in his little comedy shtick. It was very funny. And we had Randy Rogel write some songs uh, about history. So we sold this thing. But then we had to figure out what is the balance between content, educational content, and comedy. And our approach was, it's a comedy. We're writing a comedy, and they're going to be in educational situations. They're going to be in historical situations, but other than that, it's going to be a comedy. So they're going to see that Ben Franklin had a kite and made spectacles and created certain things, 
but basically they're going to annoy that living daylights out of Ben Franklin. <laughs> and really, we did take sort of that approach where we're going to have this group of kids who each with vivid personalities who are just sort of getting under the skin of different great historical figures. And the other fun part was that these historical figures we provided, we, we hired, I think, the best voiceover artists and uh, impressionists on earth to come in and do a lot of the roles. So uh, Maurice LaMarche played Bob Hope's voice for uh, George Washington. And uh, <laughs> uh, we did Johnny Carson's voice for uh, Abe Lincoln and uh, Hervé Villachez's voice for uh, Napoleon. So it was very funny. So Animaniacs was recently announced to be rebooted for Hulu. As the original creator, were you consulted or involved in the process in any way? And what do you think the challenges are with updating Animaniacs for today's audiences? I have a lot of ideas for Animaniacs, for the characters of Animaniacs. Uh, I would definitely um, love to see them in some situations that I've been playing with. But at this point, Warners and Amblin haven't lined me up to be involved in the new... Uh, show so i'm reluctant to spill my ideas out that's there that's fair at yeah this point. don't give them uh, away <laughs> but i i do think that the characters are vital and uh, still valid and still fun i think the challenges that exist for a show uh like animaniacs today is that the process by which we animated it uh, which was uh 2d and pretty elaborate and a lot of work it's just not being done there's a lot of flash animation so i think it'll be tough to recreate the same look i think it'll be tough and challenging and i think it'll be impossible to really recreate the show without getting all the same brilliant creative people involved because it really was a, a perfect gathering of great artists and writers and voice people and musicians so i think if they can get as many of those same people together It would be great, but I don't think that's what their plan is. So right. I don't know what will happen. We'll see. So at this point, what's next for you? What are your plans for the future and, and what you're wanting to do? I'm developing several uh, animated TV series. I'm still loving my animation. And I've got to get out there and pitch these things. That's always the sort of the, the tense, tricky part. <laughs> so I do have uh, three different shows that I'm real high on right now. And rather than... Uh, pitch them to you. I'll <laughs> invite me back after I sell them and I'll tell you all about them. <laughs> and do you think you would ever do anything other than animation? Would you do live action or more dramatic animation again, like Batman or perhaps a stage musical? I have a lot of writing in me that I, I want to accomplish. Certainly I have some live action ideas. I'm great at the writing and the conceiving and the development. And then getting out there and pitching them and selling them and getting the, uh, the money behind them is always a little bit challenging for me. So I have to, I have to like focus, but uh, I do just love the creative process and I'm still working with great people like Paul Dini and, and Deanna Oliver and a bunch of other people. Rug and I just did uh, a Freakacon event recently. And so anyway, I still love the process. I love the people and uh, I'm planning on making as much as I can. So before we go, we have some uh, final questions for you. Number one, what are you watching on TV right now? I am a South Park fan. So when those are new, I'm, I'm there and watching it. I like Colbert and Seth Meyer at night. I like uh, Homeland. I enjoy that. 
I watch The Alienist. I'm, I'm there every week for Saturday Night Live. I love comedy, so that always works for me. And since I love comedy, currently watching The Dodgers is uh, pretty funny, too. <laughs> Do you have any advice for aspiring writers and creators, whether in animation or otherwise? Free advice, you get what you pay for, so that's what I'm <laughs> offering here. But listen, if you're a writer and you know you can write, you have to stick with it. It can be frustrating, but please stick with it. Get your ideas on paper. And even if you can't write the full script now, get the idea on paper now. You can go back to it later. It's important to stockpile your ideas up because you'll be very grateful later when you're like void of ideas. Oh, wait, that's a good one. I can pursue that. If you've seen the story that you're working on before, stop. If you've seen a show that has a story or an episode that's very similar to what you're writing, try to think of a new way to do it. So it's just not like you're making like uh, Home Alone with Cats or something like that. I mean, uh, Hanna-Barbera always did this, oh, the, the movie studio comes to town and Yogi or Huck or whoever is going to be in the movie. I mean, do we ever, ever need to see that story again? No. There's some stories we just don't need to see again. So try not to line up that assignment. And then I know that you can sell shows that you're passionate about, uh, that mean a lot to you. That's really important. And then again, going back to the idea of the kernel of the idea, be true to the idea of the story. Don't let it get so overloaded with extra stuff that you lose sight of the reason you started writing that story. Do you have any resources, be it books or tools or anything that can be useful for our listeners? Rhyme Zone. Rhyme Zone? <laughs> I go there all the time because I write a lot of lyrics or poems and different things like that and uh, very helpful. There's also some slang dictionaries online that I find very helpful, you know, Urban Dictionary, uh, just because I'm not the hippest dude on earth. And I, I, it's, sometimes it's worthwhile to know how people are describing certain things. You know, I, ha I have a library of books about writing and about screenwriting, about the creative process. And I'll occasionally uh, look at them. I, I love reading biographies of people in our business. Uh, it's interesting to see how they went about what they were doing. And those always fascinate me. But for the writer, I think the most important thing to do, besides having, you know, elements of style available to you every day, keeping the process going, keeping the writing going. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of our episode. So I want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in, as well as Tom for joining us. And before we go, just a reminder that our Paper Tees teaser competition is still open for submissions. If you have a teaser from your script of eight pages or less, any format, any genre, you can send that to us at paperteam.co slash teaser and uh, potentially get some feedback on air and win some prizes from our sponsors. And you can get all the show notes for this episode at paperteam.co slash 89. And if you want to leave us a review, we would love that. And you can do that at paperteam.co slash iTunes. All those reviews are going to help new people find the podcast and build our community. And as a reminder, this episode of Paper Team is brought to you by Roadmap Writers. Roadmap Writers gives screenwriters the tools they need to take their skills to the next level with courses taught by industry executives. In just two years, Roadmap has helped more than 40 writers find representation. Visit roadmapwriters.com and use the code ROADMAP, all caps, all one word, to save $15 off your first program. And as always, I'm on Twitter at TV Calling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. Are you on Twitter or any kind of social media? Yeah, Twitter, uh, at Tom Ruger. That's my Twitter account. 
All right, if you have any thoughts, feedback, opinions, or ideas for future episodes, you can send them to ask at paperteam.co. And what are we doing next week, Nick? Uh, the same thing we do every week, Alex, trying to take over the world. Uh, just kidding. We're actually, what is our next episode? We're doing a rewriting episode, so we're going to be rewriting that joke until <laughs> <laughs> until someone laughs at it. Uh, <laughs> all right, we'll see you guys then. See ya. Bye.